Have you ever had anybody, perhaps a stranger, maybe someone you didn't know very well, maybe just a passing acquaintance, do something for you good that you didn't ask for, only to really fully understand and grasp it sometime later? Didn't really hit you at the time the full import and impact of what this person did for you you didn't really grab it so to speak until sometime later then it hits you and you say wow did they ever do something good for me and you enjoy once again reliving so to speak what happened sometime previously salvation sometimes comes that way God is a stranger to us. Oh, we might know his name and we might have used his name maybe even in a foul sense. So we had some acquaintanceship with God. We certainly weren't seeking for their salvation that he gave us because no man seeks after God. And sometimes we don't really grasp the fullness of the salvation that he gave us until some time later. And then it begins to dawn on us what he gave us and what it meant for him to provide it and to give it to us. One of the aspects of salvation that I think falls into this description is the topic of our study that we've looked at last week and we'll look at a few more times. Sanctification. In fact, there are many people that don't even know the term. They don't even know there is such a thing as sanctification, let alone understand what it means and have a grasp of its operation in in their lives. They just don't know what it is. And sadly, there are many people who, quite frankly, don't give a hoot. They don't care. They're not interested. I'm saved, satisfied, secure. Count me in. I'll be there at the roll call. And that's all it means to them. Well, we began last week looking at this aspect of our salvation in Christ, sanctification. And we use as the, as the basis John 17, and if you want to, you can turn there, because we'll read a couple verses there again, and use them as the foundation for our study today. It introduces this Doctrine, if you will, of sanctification. And no person less than the Lord Jesus introduces it. Because <laughs> he makes it part of his prayer. John 17, as you know, is I think probably more appropriately called the Lord's Prayer than the one that we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Because this one he actually prayed. This was his prayer. John 17, and we'll just read a couple verses. 
John 17, 17 through 19. Well, let's read through 20. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And as we saw last week, the definition of sanctification, we must start there so that we all have the same dictionary and we know what we're talking about. Sanctification means holy, holiness. On some occasions, it also means set apart or consecrated, dedicated. We especially see that phrase, that term used in the Old Testament where they were to sanctify the offerings that they brought and the sacrifices that they brought as part of temple worship. And they were to sanctify themselves for particular feast days and celebration days. And the priests especially were to sanctify themselves for the service of the temple not only make themselves clean and physically pure, but they were to set themselves aside for service unto God. And we also saw that it is part of God's design and plan and purpose for His creation. This isn't an asterisk. This isn't an option of Christianity. This is not a part that if you want to, you could. And certain of us who do pursue it, we kind of view them as holier-than-thou kind of people. It's not an asterisk. It's not an option. It is the purpose and plan of God that his creation live and walk in holiness. In fact, he wants it extended throughout all the earth. He commanded Adam and Eve to do that, to take his presence throughout all of the earth, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, take this garden temple presence of God with you and take it throughout all of the earth. So God designs and plans that holiness should be present throughout all the earth. And we hinted at the fulfillment of it coming in the person of Christ. Galatians 4.4 In the fullness of time God sent forth His Son born of a woman born under the law to redeem them that were under the law. And we concluded our time. I want to take up from that point, from the Lord Jesus, and take that part of the prayer, verse number 19, where Jesus said, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself. The Lord Jesus, when the Father sent him, he fulfilled all that the Old Testament proclaimed regarding this promise that began in the Garden of Eden that God gave to Adam and Eve after their sin. He promised someone who would come and crush the head of the serpent, would come as the seed of the woman. 
throughout the Old Testament, we have progressively revealed to us more and more and more about this champion, about this Messiah, and he's further described as the Son of God. He's going to be the Son of David. He's going to be the King. He'll sit on the throne and he'll rule forever. And the Old Testament progressively reveals more and more and more about this one who would come and provide redemption for sinners like you and me. Jesus fulfilled it all. We won't take the time today to look at all of the areas in which he fulfilled what the Old Testament revealed about him. We can reserve that for another study or another time. But he fulfilled them all to the exact letter. The time of his birth, the place of his birth, the lineage, complete in every respect. God in the flesh, a new creation. There were a couple of creations, you know. There was the original creation, and then there was the new creation, in a sense, from Noah after the flood. And then now Christ comes, and the scriptures call him the last Adam. None after him like him. God in the flesh. Well, Jesus in his prayer, he said, I sanctify myself. How did he set himself apart? Because he did. How did he set himself apart for God's service? Well, I've hinted at one already and discussed about him coming as being born of a woman. Have you considered what Jesus did to become the seed of a woman? Turn to Hebrews 2. I just want to remind you of two references that describe for us what Christ did, how he set himself aside to take upon himself human flesh. I'm going to walk over here and turn this down a little bit. It's a little bit squawky. Hebrews chapter 2. Let me see here. I've got to find my, my verse. Starting in verse number 14. Let me back up to 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. 
And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, I read just a little bit of a background so you can see verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The eternal Son of the eternal God took flesh. Took it. He set himself aside for the service of God. He consecrated himself He set himself apart and took on flesh that he might destroy the devil, the one who was to come and to crush the head of the serpent. He took on flesh that he might do that on behalf of flesh and blood. There's another reference that describes it slightly differently. Philippians chapter 2. Talking about how Christ set himself apart, set himself aside for the service of God. Philippians chapter 2. Again, I need to find my reference. Starting in verse 5. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Do you know what that phrase means? What that phrase literally means is, he was God. He didn't have to grasp after it. He didn't have to try and earn it. He didn't have to try and do something to deserve that rank. He was equal with God. It wasn't something he had to grasp after. That describes his nature. He was equal with God. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How did Christ set himself aside? He set himself aside. He consecrated, sanctified himself by taking upon himself human flesh that he might redeem us. There's another way in which Christ set himself aside, and that is by the life that he lived. The life that he lived, we read frequently, but two references you can look up in John 5 and John 6. He just repeatedly said, I came not to do my will, but the will of my Father. I don't do anything I don't see the Father do. The works that I do, the Father does them through me. Jesus repeatedly 
declared his submission to the Father. He separated himself from his own will, his own purpose, his own plans. He set those aside. I came not to do my will, but the will of my Father. He set himself aside from his own will to do the Father's will that he might bring many sons to glory. There's another way he set himself aside. The one that perhaps you were wondering if I'd ever get to it. And it's the one actually he's hinting at here. His disciples have kind of lost all sense of what is really going on on this occasion, the night of his betrayal. But he set himself aside at the cross. At the cross, he set himself aside, submitting himself to the will of the Father. So when he prayed, I set myself aside, I consecrate myself, I sanctify myself, this only describes in small measure the ways in which Christ set himself aside. Now, for whom did he do it? For whom did he set himself aside? Well, we have it in the verse. For their sakes. Who's the there? Who are they? Well, earlier in the chapter, we we see it, I think it's like uh, verse number 6, if I remember correctly. But it's early in the chapter where he's saying, you know, Father, I come to you and I, I pray for those whom you have given to me. I don't pray for the world. I pray for those whom you have given to me. Verse 9, 17.9 I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That's the there of verse number 19. The they of verse number 19. The them of verse 17. His disciples. Those early followers who gathered around him, whom he taught and took with him throughout the three years of his ministry, and they walked with him and talked with him, and he taught them, and many things we don't have recorded that he taught them. He set himself aside for them. But aren't you glad verse 20 is in there? Because in verse 20 it includes you and me. I don't just pray for them. I do pray for them, but not just for them. I also pray for those who will believe on the basis of their word. And we have their word. We have the Gospels and the Epistles, which I think in the main were all written by the Apostles. That's for whom he set himself aside. If you have become a follower of Christ and you have trusted Christ's provision for sinners 
like you and like me. Christ set himself aside for you. For you. You can say, for me. He did it for me. Let's personalize it. Let's internalize it. Let's make it more than just a grand, broad statement that he died for people. Yes, he did. But he died for me. Personalize it. Contemplate that for a moment. Christ set himself aside from all that he shared with the Father in the glories of eternity and he set that apart and set himself apart from it and took upon flesh just like you and I have and he did it for you. And you can say he did it for me. I remember the first time that dawned on me really dawned on me kind of like the story I mentioned earlier about someone doing something good for you and you didn't quite understand it until some time later and then it finally hit you well all of its fullness hasn't completely hit me yet to be honest but some of the reality of that has hit me to think He did it for me. You don't know me very well. But God has shown me some of the depths of the wickedness of my heart. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I do not know its depths, but he has shown me enough for me to have a grasp of the wonder of the fact that he set himself aside for me. For me. Can I come back to you? What did he do? Why did he do that? He said, I have sanctified myself for them. For what purpose? That they might be sanctified. Now we get to the issue that forms the foundation of our study and our pursuit. Christ did that so that you and I might be sanctified. Now, quite honestly, here's where some of the trouble begins to rise. Begins to rise to surface. Where some of the trouble begins to rise, what does it mean to be sanctified? I want to look at just one part of it today, not all of the parts of it. One part in particular that we need to grasp and understand. And we best understand it, quite honestly, by getting a grasp of the words 
and what they mean. And the tenses of the verbs and all of those kinds of things that we all hated when we went through school. Not liking to study English, not liking to study verb tenses and present and past and past participle and passive and all of that kind of stuff and we've long forgotten it. But to really understand what it is that Christ did for us, we need to look at a little bit of it so that we get a grasp of what it is he did. For example, in this verse right here, that they might be sanctified. That word literally means to cause someone to be made holy. To make holy. Jesus said, I set myself aside so that I might make my disciples holy. That's well and good. Let's go a step farther. Because the language structure in the Greek carries with it even greater significant meaning. It actually means it's done. It's done. It's completed. It's finished. And it is finished in such a way that the results of its conclusion continue in full effect until now. Uh, We don't have words in English structure that carry that. That's why it took me a long sentence to explain it. In the Greek language, they do it by a tense. (laughs) But that's what it means. When it says that they might be sanctified, I set myself aside so that they might be made holy, completely finished, and the results of it continue on. There is a very real sense in which everyone who has come to saving faith in Christ is completely holy before God. Not 99%, not 60%, not 40%, completely holy in Christ. He finished it. It's done. John seventeen nineteen. For their sake I consecrate myself that they might be sanctified, might be made holy. I want to point out a couple of additional references. Not all of them, but a couple of others that confirm that truth, lest you think I distort the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 10.
starting in verse number 8 when he said above you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings these are offered according to the law then he added behold I have come to do your will he does away with the first in order to establish the second here's the verse and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all again let's look at the structure let's look at the words what they mean your translation might say instead of have been it might say are it in essence means it's done in the present time it's done it is a statement of fact furthermore it's passive it's passive now again I don't want to bore you with an English language lesson but passive form of the verb simply means somebody did something to me I didn't do it something was done to me it's passive I did nothing to incur it to experience it to have it it was done to me this sanctification that we have in Christ does not come from something that you do or did it is something that was done to you for you it's passive you didn't have anything to do with it it was a gift Christ said I sanctify myself that they might be sanctified and here we have the writer of Hebrews stating when that happened it happened when he offered himself on the cross it's complete once for all it says now that doesn't mean that he did that for everybody that's a common misunderstanding to take that phrase he did that once for all meaning all people no that's not what the phrase means what the phrase means he he did it once never to be repeated again it's done never to be another exception never to be a second time or a third time or a fifth time it's done and in fact if you go on to the next verse it emphasizes that very fact that it was done once for all because he says in verse number 11 every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins that was the Old Testament repeatedly giving the same sacrifices over and over and over again in fact if you stop and think about it every time someone offered a sacrifice they really needed to turn around and give another one because that one was incomplete and the one that they gave next to cover the incompletions needed another one to you, you, you get the picture repeatedly over and over and over again but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down 
it's done. Those of us this morning who have trusted Christ, and I trust you all have, you stand before the Father holy, complete, finished, done, once for all accomplished at the cross when he offered himself as the full sacrifice now let's go on because another one I want you to see is verse 14 which is another emphasis of the fact that this sanctification occurred happened, finished, done it's restated in verse number 14 for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified It's finished. It's perfected. It's complete. Forever. Unlimited time, that word means. There's an unlimited time. Constantly looking into the future. Unlimited. Not going to reach an end and say, well, in the year 2080, you've got to have a renewal. <laughs> no. Not like life insurance where it has a definite time and then you've got to pay the renewals. No. It's done. Forever and all time. What do you think about that? That's yours. That's your right and privilege before God. In Christ, you stand before Him holy in Christ. Now, I know if you are honest with yourself, you will admit to the fact that in the here and now on earth, you are less than holy. In whose sight? In your sight. You, you know, in your sight, you, you know you sinned. Yeah. I am holy. The most righteous judge yeah. that ever was or will has made that declaration. Yeah. The judge, the one whom the Father has designated to serve as the judge, Christ, accomplished it for us. We stand before him complete. Jeremiah 33.3 And I will show you great and marvelous things which thou knowest not. Jeremiah 33.3 Well, what does this tell us, first of all, about God? Grace. In that while we were yet enemies... Christ died for us. He who knew no sin took our sin upon him that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. The grace of God. 
Then they have horrible regular enemies of God. Enemies. That's what we are. We don't like to view ourselves as that way. But in reality, before Christ came into our lives and changed us, we hated him. We don't like to say that. But we did. We didn't submit ourselves to him. We didn't want anything to do with him. Oh, we may have given lip service to it, but in reality, we really didn't want him to control us or have anything to do with our everyday lives. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His mercy, his love, it was love for you that caused Christ to sanctify himself and set himself apart that he might sanctify you. He loved you. He loved me. Unlovely, unholy, dirty, rotten, sinner that I was. He loved me. Shows the love of God and the love of Christ. How about long-suffering? How about His sovereignty? Why you? Why me? (laughs) No earthly reason why me. None. Absolutely no earthly reason why me. He loved me because He loved me. And we can trace that all the way back to Abraham. God told the children of Israel why he chose them. It wasn't because you're the biggest clan. Not because you're the smartest. Not because you're the wealthiest. Not because you're the most powerful. I chose you because I loved you. Well, those are just little rays of light into the nature of God. What does this tell us about the atonement? The atonement, the blood of Christ on the cross, what did it do? Satisfied. It did something. It satisfied. The death of Christ on the cross did not make salvation possible. Now understand the distinctions. His death on the cross did not make salvation possible. He secured it. He bought it. He paid for it. The Father accepted it. Now here comes a dangerous reality as a consequence of that. And it flies in the face of what we have been taught since we were in kindergarten, nursery school at the church. Jesus didn't die for everybody. He couldn't have. He couldn't have because when he died, it bought something. 
And the father accepted it. So that if he died for everybody, well, on the one hand then, you'd have to say, everybody's saved. On the other hand, you would have to say when the reality of that error hits your mind and you grasp that and you know not everyone is saved, you know some who aren't and who defy God and reject Him, then you would have to say that the Father went back on His Word. Because the Father said, all that the Son has given me, what is true about them? They're in my hand. Nobody can take them away. The atonement purchased your salvation and made you perfect before God. It accomplished something. Now that has implications on all other kinds of doctrines which we don't have the time to tackle this morning. Looking at the clock, we're running a couple minutes over. But just grasp that truth. Just grasp that little ray of truth. And let that sink into your mind and think about that and meditate upon that. And let the scriptures confirm that truth in your mind that when Christ died he died for you and he bought and paid for the salvation and sanctification that you have in Christ well what can we conclude well we include that because Christ has fulfilled the plan and purpose of God and purchased my redemption and secured my sanctification I stand before God holy that's how I stand Amen. and so do you if you have trusted Christ Now, a couple of implications, and then we'll have some time for your questions. Because that is true, then we must conform our thoughts, our opinions, our attitudes, our beliefs, our doctrines to the truth. Not to what I think might be the truth, but what God in His Word has declared the truth so that it changes us it changes how we think about ourselves how we think about God how we think about Christ how we think about the Holy Spirit how we think about those about us it changes us so that we realign our lives in conformity to the truth And we repent. Oh, I'm a Christian. I believe. I've trusted. Does repentance end then? What about your unbelief? 
what are you going to do about that? Are you going to repent of that and turn from it and believe the truth? That's what he calls us to do, is to repent and believe the truth. Change. Don't go that way, go this way. Don't believe that, believe this. Don't trust that, trust this. That's repentance. It's a turning and going the other direction. Repent and believe the truth. Furthermore, I would suggest to you rest. We work so hard, don't we? Come on, agree with me. Yeah, we do. We work really hard at this Christian thing, don't we? We work so hard. I work so hard. And every now and then the Spirit of God has to knuckle me down and say, Tom, you're working so hard, you know it isn't any good. You know that isn't how it works. You know there isn't anything you can do that will please and satisfy me. Rest. Rest in what I've done for you. Rest in what I have provided for you. Rest in the fact that I have given you not only how you stand before me in Christ, but I have then also provided for you the Holy Spirit. And this is an introduction into next week. The work of the Spirit of God. What does the Spirit of God do? He guides me into the truth. He teaches me. He counsels me. He reveals to me the things of Christ. He takes of the things of Christ and makes them mine. He convicts me of sin. He corrects me. And on the list can go of the work of the Holy Spirit. The last list I had was over 30 different things that the Spirit of God does in the life of a believer. Rest. Trust Him to do His work. Yield to His impulses in your life and let Him bring about in you the practical experience in your daily life how you stand before the Father complete thank Him praise Him honor Him glorify Him love Him one thing I've learned from Dr. Greer that has so helped me is when you ever teach or speak you must have objectives what do you want to accomplish Don't just stand up there and blather. Have a purpose. Have a plan. My purpose. My one aim for the last few minutes that we've gathered together is that you might have a new glimpse of God and what He's done for you. That you might love Him. That your love for Him might grow a little bit that your honor and praise and thanksgiving for what he has done for you might grow a little bit that's my prayer that's my plan that's what I pray that God will accomplish in your life